Hi, this is David Flowers, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Visiting with us, welcome. My name is David Flowers. I'm the senior pastor here at Grantham. But I will not be preaching this morning. We have a guest speaker with us. If you'll look in your bulletin, you can see the sermon summary. It says, it's no secret that the landscape of American religious identity is shifting, and Generation Z is the least religious and the least Christian cohort of adults in the nation today. What sense can the church make of these trends? And what hope is there for reaching young people with the good news of the risen Christ? This morning we have Emily Bingham with us. She is the teaching ministries pastor and director of campus ministries next door at Messiah University. Uh, She's also a, a licensed local pastor within the United Methodist Church. I've recently become friends with her and getting acquainted with her. I know she has a heart for students, a heart for youth, uh, for teenagers, uh, for college students, and I'm so excited to welcome her. Would you join me in welcoming her to the stage this morning? Well, good morning, friends. It is so good to be with you all the way from also Grantham, Pennsylvania. (laughs) I'm really grateful for the invitation from Pastor David and excited that he specifically invited me to speak this morning about what ministry to college students or ministry to Gen Z, because there's overlap, but they're not exactly the same, what that can look like in our day. Given my work at Messiah and also what I've discerned to be God's call for my life and ministry, it's a fitting topic. It's one that is close to my heart, but I want to be really clear up front that I do not come to you this morning with three easy steps for filling every seat in every pew with college students next week. And I would suggest to you that if anyone comes and stands here with this microphone and tells you that they do have those three easy steps, they're trying to sell you something. And the reality is there's a demand for that answer within the church today. Because, broadly speaking, we are at a loss for how to do ministry to the next generation. And quite frankly, many of us are concerned about what this means for the future of the church that we love. And it doesn't matter where you get your news, headlines pointing to the decline of the American church are all around us. Take, for example, this headline recently from Fox News. 
American churches closing faster than new ones can open. Or this one from the Pew Research Center. In US, decline of Christianity continues at rapid pace. Or this one from Christianity Today. This is our people. Decline of Christianity shows no signs of stopping. Many of these headlines place the blame quite squarely on Gen Z. Like this rather dramatic headline from Kentucky Today. Gen Z is spiritually illiterate and abandoning church. How did we get here? Isn't this a fun morning we're having? (laughs) It sounds pretty doom and gloom, doesn't it? Is this the future of the church? Is there a future of the church? Or, in light of the resurrection that Tyler was pointing us to, do we have more reason for hope? Take this article from CNN just last week on Easter Sunday. Predictions about the decline of Christianity in America may be premature. A hint of hope. Or even better, this recent headline from Tim Keller. American Christianity is due for a revival. The date of February 5th is exactly three days before a chapel service at Asbury University in tiny little Wilmore, Kentucky. Didn't stop. For two weeks, students who were moved by the Spirit of God lingered in the sanctuary, in that college chapel where a group of Gen Z students were worshiping together. They stayed and they prayed and they sang, and word started to spread across the campus that this was happening. And students told their friends, and they kept coming back without chapel credit being offered. Hint, hint to some of you, I know. And hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people from across the country, from across the world, And I think more importantly, for more than 200 different high schools and colleges and universities came and spent time in prayer and worship in Hughes Auditorium. Perhaps there is hope for the gospel in Gen Z. I think Psalm 78 helps us start to make sense of some of these headlines and put them in proper perspective. It says, we will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to our children so the next generation might know them even the children not yet born. And they, in turn, will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, 
not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. When I get discouraged by the cultural change around us, and I promise you, I do, I'm reminded of Jesus' promise that he has built his church not on sand, but on the rock. And that he has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And I don't read in Jesus' words any exception that says, unless the headlines get really bad. Maybe I missed that part, but I don't think I did. When each generation sets its hope anew on God, it might look a little bit different. That word anew is important. Simply because one previous generation has set its hope on God, and we praise God for that, it does not automatically mean that that is somehow by osmosis entered into the next generation. No, that next generation must set its hope anew on God. And that's not a scary thing, although maybe it is. <laughs> it's a beautiful and good and hopeful and right thing. But in order for that generation to be able to place its hope anew on God, they need to live like the psalmist here describes the people of God living. Not hiding the truths of God's commands. Being utterly committed to telling the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord. So to that end, I hope to do two things in our time together this morning. First, I want to give you a snapshot of Gen Z and some of the cultural forces that have shaped this particular generation. And second, having a better sense of who that generation is, I want to offer some approaches to ministry found in Deuteronomy chapter six that I think are helpful for any generation, but specifically for ministry to Gen Z. So first, who is Gen Z? When we talk about Gen Z, short for Generation Z, if you haven't picked up on that by now, we're referring to the American cohort born between approximately 1999 and 2015. Those dates are a little bit squishy, depending on which researchers you're looking at. They might flex by a few years on the, the front or the back end. And when we look at this range of dates, my guess is that every single one of you in this room knows and loves at least one person in this generational cohort. And if you don't, I would like to remind you that I can see members of Gen Z right here in this congregation, and so you ought to start knowing and loving them today. Amen. But before I start to make any broad, sweeping generalizations about this generation, I want to let you know that these are broad, sweeping generalizations. 
they can be helpful in helping us understand the big picture of cultural trends, generational trends, but what they should not lead us to do is to make assumptions about any particular individual within that generational cohort. Understood? Okay, thank you. That, that was my teaching moment. No, you are not my students, although some of you are. So what we're gonna do is take a look at some of these broad categories uh, that come from some research done by Barna, really great research on the church, comes out of Barna, uh, in collaboration with Impact 360 Institute. So some of these numbers that I'm gonna be sharing with you in just a moment uh, specifically refer to Gen Z teens in the year 2018 when this study was conducted. So those 13 to 18, 19 year olds in 2018 are now approximately our college students or our very soon to be college students or our very recently graduated graduates. So keep that in mind. And I also want you to keep in mind that 2018 feels like six lifetimes ago. I don't know if you've heard, but 2020 was a pretty intense year in the entire world. And so some of these uh, trends that we're looking at have been accelerated. Um, some others may have been slowed, but, but actually I think most of them have been accelerated. Anyway, so this study compiles together six, uh, six forces that have helped shape who Gen Z is. We're gonna take a look at those. The first is technology. This generation has not lived without the influence of the internet and easy access to devices. I remember the first day that America Online was accessible from my home. Our college students don't remember that day. I remember putting a floppy disk of Ms. Pac-Man into the computer. Our college students don't remember that day. They've had, for their entire lives, easy access to the internet, easy access to devices. And today, more than half, on an average day, are spending four plus hours on some sort of screen media. And again, given that this is pre-2020, my instinct tells me that this is an underestimate at this point, an underestimate. Another trend shaping this generation has to do with worldview. Gen Z is a cohort that is both highly inclusive and also highly individualistic. And that may seem like a bit of, uh, of a paradox, and I think it is. They're extraordinarily sensitive to the feelings and to the experiences of others, want to include as many of, as possible, and yet remain hesitant to uh, put any sort of a value judgment on differences that may exist between people. 
And this can often lead to uh, a hesitancy to name and own any sort of a truth commitment that may intersect with the truth commitment of another. So it's an interesting paradox, both highly inclusive and also highly individualistic. And this is, it makes sense when we then look at trends among Christian faith within Gen Z. Only three in five members of Gen Z would identify as Christian compared to nearly two thirds of other cohorts of American adults. And compared with other generations of American adults, members of Gen Z are twice as likely to say that they're atheist. Moving on. (laughs) When we look at identity, which flows out of worldview, Gen Z has a, a desire to create safe spaces, perhaps you've even heard that term used, where each person can express themselves without fear of judgment. But how that identity that they want to express has been formed is different from previous adult generations. Among other adult generations, family ranks as the number one marker and influencer of identity, of who someone says uh, that they are. Family is most important among other generations to developing a sense of self. But among Gen Z, a plurality consider personal achievement and hobbies to be most important to their own sense of self. That's a significant shift. And it's connected to this idea of family. Gen Z, again, broadly speaking, has complicated family dynamics. About half say that their parents are their primary role models. Good job, 50% of you. But only one third would say that family is core to their identity. So influence and identity aren't necessarily mapping up as we might expect. So where's this generation finding a sense of security and meaning if it's not in places like family or Christian faith as much as previous generations? Well, coming of age in a post 9-11 nation and then reeling from the 2008 recession And following even this data, a global pandemic, this generation has some significant anxiety about what the future might look like for them. Personally, and also collectively, what sort of world are they heading into? So, many of their goals around security have to do with professional success and financial stability. More than half, about 51% of Gen Z, would say that happiness is their ultimate goal in life. Trying to combat this sense of anxiety and the doom and gloom all around us. And 43% would say that financial success is the number one factor that would lead them to experience happiness. 
So this is a generation that wants to be happy. That's all we want, right? We just want to be happy. And the way that we get there is through financial security. Because we've seen a lot of financial insecurity around us and hope to quiet some of that anxiety by by getting there on our own. And finally, another force that has shaped Gen Z is diversity. Gen Z is the most racially and ethnically diverse generation in American history. And about half of Gen Z is non-white. And what that means is that if we want to engage in effective ministry to Gen Z, even within our own communities, we will inevitably have to be engaging in cross-cultural ministry. Anybody overwhelmed yet? Okay, good, here comes the hope. What I want to submit to you this morning is that in order for us to help this generation, this particular generation that God has created, in order to help them set their hope anew on God, we need to offer them a vision of a truly good life. To offer them a vision of the good life. And I believe that Deuteronomy chapter six gives us some wisdom for how we might present Gen Z and truly any generation with a vision of a good life, serving a good God in his kingdom. Now this chapter of Deuteronomy six immediately follows after Deuteronomy five. That's what I got all those degrees for. Deuteronomy 5, you may remember, is Deuteronomy's account of the Ten Commandments. And so the Ten Commandments are where God's people are told by God what it looks like to live in his kingdom with him as king, having just left slavery in Egypt, where they served a very different kind of king in a very different kind of kingdom. And so the Ten Commandments are God's way of saying how you have learned to live and how you have learned to be in the world, that's not how I want to do things. Here it is. And so when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we start to see some commands from God through Moses for what it looks like to then help next generations, future generations, learn to live in the commands that God has now given. Deuteronomy 6 begins like this. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing into the Jordan to possess. So that... Here's the why. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you. 
and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. What Deuteronomy 6 is starting to tell us here is that what we have been given in the content of the faith is a vision of the good life, so that it may go well with you. I wonder how many of us when we're trying to tell others what the Christian faith looks like and and why we would hope that someone else might embrace it, are we telling them that our hope is that we want it to go well with them so that it may go well with you? It's beautiful. As Deuteronomy chapter 6 goes on, I see embedded within the text four approaches to ministry, really four ways of life, that will help us give Gen Z a vision for this good life so that it may go well with them. The first thing I see here is holistic discipleship. Holistic discipleship. Let's keep reading Deuteronomy 6 at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Some of us may be more familiar with this passage from the Gospels. Because when Jesus is approached by an expert in the law who's trying to trick him into saying something not good, (laughs) he asks him, you know, teacher, which of these commandments is the greatest? He's asking Jesus to rank. (laughs) What do we need to do the most? And Jesus' response is this passage From Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think what this shows us is that for Jesus, none of the Ten Commandments listed in Deuteronomy 5 are in and of themselves the most important, but rather it's this picture from Deuteronomy chapter six of living a life of integrity. That's key. A life where who we are in what we think, what we say, what we do, what we feel is all in alignment. We're not that person that James talks about who's double-minded in all that he does. No, we are living as one person with one face headed in one direction toward that God who is also one. And this call to integrity isn't just about who we are internally. I think it's also about how we live externally, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think one of the most helpful ways that we can do this 
in helping Gen Z understand what the Christian faith looks like when it's lived out, yes, is by being people of integrity, saying what we say we're going to do, living out of what we say we believe, and connecting what we do here on Sunday morning with what we do Monday morning in the office, with what we do Tuesday evening at the park, with what we do Wednesday evening having dinner with a friend, where all of life, all of life is oriented toward love of God and love of neighbor. The second approach I see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 toward helping us uh, give a vision of the good life is incarnational evangelism. It's a good Christian university kind of term, incarnational evangelism. Continue reading at verse 7. Impress them, meaning these commands, on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I love these verses. It gives us a picture not of going to talk about God's commands for an hour or two on Sunday morning letting the professionals handle it because that's what we're paying them to do, right? But no, how we show faith to the next generation is how we live every day as we go to the grocery store, as we sit at home and read a book by the fireplace in the evening. It's in our daily living together that we're able to impress upon others what this faith looks like. It's the day-to-day stuff that is incarnational evangelism. Now, for a generation that on average spends four plus hours a day looking at screen media, this kind of embodied discipleship This kind of embodied evangelism, yeah, is really different, but it's also a breath of fresh air to have real relationships with real people that can help push us out of that individualistic perspective when we're building relationships as we go talking about who God is and what God might have for our lives and for his world as we go. Frankly, it's also a stark contrast to the way that many of our churches and ministries approach evangelism and discipleship. Robert Coleman makes a really strong case for this in his classic book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. And I know at least a few here have read it because I assigned it for class. He says, there is simply no substitute for getting with people. And it is ridiculous to imagine that anything less, short of a miracle, got to count for those, can develop strong Christian leadership. After all, 
if Jesus, the Son of God, found it necessary to stay in almost constantly, to stay almost constantly with his few disciples for three years, and even one of them was lost. How can a church expect to do this job on an assembly line basis a few days out of the year? (laughs) For somebody who is a ministry professional, that's hard to read, but it's true. Because the vision that we get from scripture about how we do discipleship, how we do evangelism, how we help the people in our lives come to understand who God is, it means doing it together with them day by day as we go. So are we getting with Gen Z, as Coleman might say? And are we spending time with them in ways where they can see us following Jesus? And doing what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians and saying, follow me as I follow Christ. I think this is the model that's set before us by Jesus himself in the incarnation who took on flesh, a real body, and made his dwelling among us. And because he made his dwelling among us, we have seen the glory of God. Are we in the flesh getting with people who can see the glory of God in our lives? The third approach, excuse me, the third approach to ministry that arises from this text is one you might not have picked up on right away cultural engagement cultural engagement. Continuing to read from Deuteronomy at verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you that you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. There's a lot here. (laughs) But what I want to highlight is that this is challenging stuff for a generation who views making value judgments about competing ways of viewing the world as off-limits. Gen Z needs help understanding, 
recognizing and naming the idols of our age. They need help seeing that the way of the cross is not the way of the rest of the world. And we need to help them understand what those differences are and know how to identify when we might be starting to slip into a different kind of way. Together, we need to recognize the competing narratives that tell us what the good life is. And for a generation that views personal success as a primary marker of identity, we need to be reminded, as Deuteronomy shows us here, that the primary narrative of the Christian faith is grace. Actually, I think all of us need to be reminded of that again and again. Cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of things you did not provide, wells you didn't dig. We each have received gifts. We have received grace. And not just the, the tangible gifts that we can point to of a home or clothes or vehicles or financial resources, but the gift of grace of Christ on the cross, of him resurrected, that is something we have not done. And we need to be reminded again and again and again of the reality that at the heart of the Christian faith, is the fact that God has done for us in Christ what we could never do for ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of this story. The final approach to ministry I see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that can help us give Gen Z a vision of the good life is storytelling. And this is one of my favorites maybe because I'm prone to be a little bit of a storyteller, but I think it's maybe the best bang for our buck in ministry, is telling the stories of what God has done for us. Listen to how this chapter concludes. In the future, when your son asks you what is the meaning, have any parents ever gotten that question? What is the meaning? Why? What is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord your God has commanded you? Tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. <laughs> I love that this passage assumes that the next generation will ask, why are we doing all this? Why do we have to get up on Sunday morning? 
How come I have to sit in this hard wooden pew with people that I don't know yet? How come I'm not allowed to do that thing my friends are doing or watch that show my friends are watching? What is the meaning of all this? Especially for a generation with lower levels of biblical literacy and surrounded by fewer Christians than other generations have been, it's a really valid question. And one that maybe we from other generations ought to reflect on as well. What's the meaning of all this? And rather than pointing to any of the commands in Deuteronomy 5, what we hear is simply tell them the story. Don't give them a list of all the doctrines. That's easier to figure out on your own. Tell them the story. Tell them the story of what God did for you. We might call that sharing your testimony. But I like storytelling. Tell them, how have you seen the grace of God? Where has God showed up for you? So I want to close with a reading from Psalm 145. Hopefully it's up here on the screen. Yeah, great. The psalmist writes, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Friends, if we want to see God's kingdom come and flourish in the next generation, our generation has to commend God's works to the next. Gotta tell him, what's he done? What's he done for you? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your kingdom is one that will endure, that you have built your church on a rock and that we can be confident and who you are, who you will continue to be, that changing winds of culture um, don't throw you off course, don't interrupt your purposes. And God, would you help us be people who live in hope, who live in the hope of the resurrection, and people who are quick to walk alongside the young and to tell them who you are, to tell them how we have seen you move in power, where we've seen your beauty, 
where we're asking you to move in our own lives. God, would you help us be people who commend your works to a new generation? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.